Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. I think it's only right and fair that we start this programme with an apology. This has been eating away at me all afternoon and the only way to move on is to address the issue head on. So here goes, Ken. Yeah. In our first programme today, Murph here. Yeah. was telling a story about a freak injury suffered by Ryan Lochte, the Olympic champion of swimmer. Yeah. Lochte suffered medial knee ligament damage, Ken, when attempting to catch and lift an overjoyed female fan who was running at him full pelt in the style of Dirty Dancing. Right. As we made the point at the time. Now, Lochte was obviously playing the Patrick Swayze role there, and I said the female fan was playing the part of Frenchie. <laughs> um, judging by Mercer's reaction at the time and Mark's reaction today, I made a mistake, which I now can rectify. That's the joy of having a second program today, Murph. That's why I well, like second count as well. I screw things yeah, up in the first not, show. You're not really Frenchy. rectifying it. I mean, it's too late. I mean, it's, it's been out there now for three hours. I'll confirm that the lead character in Dirty Dancing was in fact called Baby. Baby. Yeah, well, no, I Frenchy. told him that. Do you know who Frenchy was? Um, she was I was one thinking of, the, of Finchie there. No, not Chris Finch. She was, in fact, one of the pink ladies. One of the pink ladies in Greece, specifically, Ken, the pink lady who dropped out of high school to attend beauty school. Okay, so it actually wasn't, you were in the right ballpark. So I apologise to both Baby and Frenchie, and of course, my sincere apologies to the actresses who played the two characters, Jennifer Grey and Dee Dee Khan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Grey, that was, that was Baby, right? Yes. Yeah. She was Ferris Bueller's sister as well. Correct. Mm. Let's talk about lots of 80s movies. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, or we could move on to some sport. Of course, there was Stocker Channing yeah. as well, who played another Stocker one of the pink, and uh, who played uh, played another one of the pink ladies. She was supposed to be a teenager. She was thirty-two years old. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Hollywood for that's you. Oh, you can't believe a word they say. Ken, a stark day first training session under Mon Kino. Who is doing what on the training field? Well, you know, we all, we arrived there and there's this huge crowd. You know, this huge crowd of uh, journalists bristling with TV cameras and microphones, and uh, a big crowd of fans as well. Now, this is very different from the last time I was up there, Malahide, when Trapatoni and Tardelli were there. I mean, barely anyone was really interested in turning up. Certainly in terms of fans, you're not going to see too many. But this press co- or this training session, rather, 
Um, and we were only let in for the first 15 minutes because that's the most, uh, the least significant part of it, um, was being broadcast live on Sky. You know, the, the Sky Sports were literally showing this training, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a bunch of men, you know, uh, doing little short sprints, sort of getting warmed up to do some actual training. And Roy Keane, uh, with his hands behind his back, sort of just walking around in a little circle by himself, miles away from the players, tapping a ball around at his feet. Uh, Roy Keane, at one point, I saw him, he turned around and he had the ball there, and he just sort of lazily passed the ball into the net that was there, you know, as a goal, sort of close enough to where he was, just sort of knocked it, in, as though he was just knocking it in there just to get it out of the way. This was reported in The Guardian later that day. I, I, I read it on The Guardian website at one point. I was thinking, this is ridiculous. This is the most intensely covered assistant manager there has ever been. Yeah. And I, I'm just thinking, why? how is it that Roy Keane, years after he was a major player, I mean, eight years after he left Manchester United, and, and seven years after he retired, and, you know, years even since he's been a Premier League manager, is such a star that, his, that him standing on a field uh, is broadcast live on Sky, and him just absentmindedly kicking a ball into a net that there's no one even guarding it is reported in The Guardian. Did you come up with an answer to that question? Is it because he speaks the truth? Is that how rare it is? I want a man who speaks the truth. Well, his truth, anyway. Uh, A man who who says without fear what's on his mind. Is it really that compelling that the eyes of the world find themselves, uh, you know, they, they just can't drag themselves away? What truth might he speak? Is that the answer? Was it because he was very good at football? Well, there's a lot of guys who've been very good not at football. Good, not as famous as him. No, um, but, you know, I mean, there have been players on a par. I'm not sure I've ever seen Zinedine Zidane, Real Madrid coaching session ever broadcast live on Sky. I'm sure it's on Real Madrid TV in fairness. Okay, that, that is Real Madrid TV's job. But um, I, I suppose really what was going on, actually, people are looking for explosions. You know, this is, this is really... Like, at one point we were there... And, you know, we just come in and everyone was kind of, the sun was shining in our eyes, you know, only a couple of people had remembered to bring shades. I mean, it's November. You don't, you don't expect that. Sun is coming down at one of those low winter angles. And we're all trying to shield our eyes, see? And we're all thinking, we're all saying, is Roy, where's Roy? Is, is he there? Is he there? And you could see him. He's actually quite an unmistakable sort of figure. Um, you know, he just, just from the stance, whatever. We'd see him over there. And someone then shouted. I don't know who it was. It was sort of from up where the TV cameras were congregating to our right. Hey, Roy! Like this. <laughs> Shout it out. Yeah. And everyone sort of heads whipped around. Who said that? You know, who was that? What kind of an idiot is trying to, you're trying to poke the bear. You're actually, that's why everyone is here. Everyone is trying to see what's, you know, <laughs> there, there was the, the moment when he came over with the bibs, you know, and ever, everyone was kind of, oh, look, Roy Keane's out of the bibs. You know, everyone is sort of <laughs> saying this uh, to each other. And then, he, you know, he gives the bib to John O'Shea. O'Shea says, oh, you know, are you going to join in? He says, oh, what, me? No, 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 not at all. But then, He's trying to find another player to give a bib to. And momentarily, just sort of, his expression darkens slightly. And everyone's going, is this the moment? Is this the moment? And then, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't the moment. He just gave the bib to a player and, and that was that. But, you know, that's the sort of um, feeling, right? I mean, it's it's awful. It's like, a, I mean, it's, I say awful. I mean, I was there part of it, you know. I mean, I'm not... Were you the uh, one who shouted it, Roy? No, it wasn't. It wasn't me. But, but that that sort of sense that everyone is here, here sort of rubbernecking, waiting to see when Roy Keane is going to have a fit of anger. You know, this is, this is literally the, the sense that I, 
God, maybe I could be completely wrong, and I don't, I don't, don't wish to cast cast aspersions on anyone else who was there because I mean, I was thinking the same thing myself. It was, yeah, but you know, it's it's obviously it's totally unfair. It's it sort of shows the outsized reputation, outsized personality. Um, that I mean, at the end of the day, this is just a a guy standing there, you know, wearing a pair of shorts with a ball. It's not probably nothing that big is going to happen. Martin O'Neill was the man who actually gave the press conference. So we'll hear what he had to say in just a couple of minutes' time after you tell us what else we're talking about. One of the topics, again, is Leo Messi's career in crisis. Yeah, Leo Messi's uh, pretty much all washed up now. Um, he's he's busted his hamstring. Uh, he's out for 2013, Barcelona are saying, unless he comes back and tells Barcelona that he is going to play. Um, even before this, though, before this injury, which looks to have finished him... Uh, finished his involvement for the rest of the calendar year, things hadn't really been going that well for him. And mainly it seems to be related to fitness, but there's some other things going on there as well, you know, uh, political things and issues of rivalry. And Messi does seem to be quite a rivalrous type of guy. I mean, for for someone who has such universal acclaim, he also doesn't seem shy of sort of stamping down on the heads of those people who might be in a position to challenge for the for the throne. You know, I suppose that's what you do when you're when you're a tyrant. And we'll talk about uh, a little bit about the future of football and television, Ken, or maybe the future. Well, you say television, Owen. I do. But you know, who says television's going to be around forever? I mean, uh, this is a very interesting subject that we're going to talk about. I mean, the the, the story essentially being BT Sports a nine hundred million pound deal to acquire three years of. Champions League rights in the UK. So taking the Champions League from ITV and Sky, paying vastly more than anyone's ever paid for it. The idea being to get people buying BT broadband. Because if you buy the broadband, you get the football. Yeah, you it's get all, the sports channel it's free. all online now, of course. Online radio being a prime example of that. Yeah, well, Ir- look, this is this, is, this is this is the history of, of media. You know, this this is this is the way it goes. You know, the technology outstrips the monopoly over the means of production and distribution. So. People thought we've got you know we've got the printing press that gives us the voice. Then suddenly the internet comes along and there's a lot of other ways. There's a lot of other ways to get your voice out there. We've got the radio license that gives us the voice. But suddenly there's a lot of other ways to get your radio message out there. I mean broadband. It seems as though maybe it's going to take over from satellite television. But maybe something else is going to take over from broadband. I mean the four G networks are very fast now. Yeah, we all kind of think at the great moment, news we, for online radio, Ken. It is, look, all I'm saying is that one way or the other, there's going to be a lot of online out there. <laughs> How is, whether it's going to be on broadband, 4G, uh, whatnot. I don't think it's going to be in satellite television, Owen. Time for Ken Hurdy's report on sport. So, uh, Martin O'Neill's press conference today and uh, arrived bang on time, which was uh, refreshing. Obviously, a lot of photographers. Uh, I mean, really ridiculous, just the, the sort of excitement. No round of applause this time. For Martin O'Neill, although I am informed by people who were there, as we know I wasn't there when Martin O'Neill was unveiled, that the people clapping for Martin O'Neill were not the journalists. It wasn't the journalist. Oh, well, he did. It definitely was a journalist. Oh, it at was? The, at the end of oh, the Oh, you press were there, con- of course. At the end of the press conference. Right, okay. What about at the beginning? I don't remember being. I don't think it was in the room. Good journalism by me. Yeah. There was a moment when the. Uh, the whole point of me being there was the report on the colour of the day, and very. particularly moments like this where there was a screen. Essentially, when I arrived in, Martin O'Neill was over on the left-hand side of the room as I looked at a very big, grand room in the uh, Gibson Hotel over by the O2 there. People might might know it. 
it was O'Neill. I could see O'Neill, a bit of glad handling going on, a lot of backslapping, nice photographs, lot, you know, a few FAI suits and all the rest of it along there with him. But apparently, just moments before that, that was initially covered. That whole scene was covered by a screen, which then opened dramatically. So the, the so it was actually revealed like a like a prize on yeah. bullseye. Well, so that's so I read from the better journalists who wrote about this. <laughs> the next <laughs> you day, saw this thing yeah. later that day. So yeah, but the, so maybe there was a round of applause at that moment. I don't know if this grand unveiling, but there was definitely applause at the end of his press conference. I wouldn't say screaming from the rooftops. Mm. Just a polite round of applause. Well, you know, that's just a, a recognition of a press conference well done, mm. I suppose seasoned salty veterans of many press conferences recognize a man who's just in a damn good press conference <laughs> and you know what's wrong with applauding what's, what's wrong with applauding the the man that you're covering i mean it happens you know you're telling me the 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 white house political corps has never given barack obama a round of applause maybe that's not a very good example did you hear what the journalists gave to alex ferguson as a parting gift a cake with a hairdryer on top yeah, I saw. Oh, not an actual hairdryer. The hairdryer was part of the like cake a design. sugar hairdryer. Uh, yeah, now I mean that was thoughtful. Nice showed it, showed a bit of. They put a thought, a thought into it. Um, not as good as the present Rio Ferdinand got him, which was a 1941 Rolex, uh, showing the exact time that he was born, as though his his coming into the world had stopped all the clocks, you know, which. I don't know. I don't know if Ferguson had wound it up or got it got it going or ever wears it or just hangs it on the wall or whatever. But that's Rio's into watches apparently. What did Martin O'Neill have to say? Um, Martin O'Neill. So um, okay, he, he. I mean, he talked to us for about twenty twenty five minutes or so. Um, and one and, and after saying, you know, I'm arrived here, blah blah, going through some of the injury news and so on and so forth. Um, it was put to him that a couple of the players who we'd been speaking to, we'll hear a bit from Stephen Ward and Alex Pierce later on, had said that the training was uh, pretty intense. I told him to say that. No, I told, told him. So, um, I was exactly. It was exactly what we we had, we had said we would do. Um, uh, Roy has. Uh, he wants to work with the players, so do I as well too. And uh, well, we had uh, we had a little formula worked out beforehand that we would take it. It's not it it wasn't rocket science or anything like this. And for the length of time that that, that we will have with the players, you know, we'll we'll I think I'll learn more from the trip rather that rather than during it, you know. And that the uh, I will have time at leisure to sit down afterwards and and plan properly for the new year. But after these two games, it's remarkable that the next match we have is not until March time. So that that will be strange when it's over, when they when we arrive back in Dublin from Poland. I think that's when it will really have hit me, you know, that I will not be with these players on a Friday morning, for instance. But um, they uh, they're very enthusiastic, ready for it. I think. I think there's a, a bit of disappointment, you know, the way in uh, in which the. Um, uh, the qualifiers ended, you know. I think that um, just speaking to them last night, I think they felt that probably the killer blow was really the late equaliser by Austria, and uh, and that not not the heart. Of, I don't mean necessarily the heart, but it certainly certainly not confidence a bit. And uh, from then onwards, it was it was really uphill. But overall, yeah, they are they're looking forward to it, you know. And McGeady uh, hasn't changed a bit since I've known them at Celtic. Exactly the same, just as crabbit as they come. Still can't quite deliver that final ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't. 
Well, I don't know. We'll wait and see what he does with McGeady. I don't think they necessarily got on all that well. I thought it was Strachan who McGeady had issues with. Hmm, yeah. Ser- like serious enough issues. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what the deal was. It was, was Strachan the coach who sold him in the end? Did he leave yeah, I, no, I, do, I do think, I think it was. Strachan even spoke publicly about that at one point. I, I, I don't want to misreport this but yeah. that was my understanding of it well the, the thing that he the, that he was saying there and the, and the interesting thing I suppose that happened with the, the players is that they were saying that uh, Roy Keane was kind of the, was taking the session you know and we had been talking about it before you know when he was a manager he didn't really tend to do that much work in the training ground but maybe things are going to be a bit different in this uh, you know and Neil was saying that's the way we had seen this role developing so maybe he's going to be the sort of coach hmm. you know whistle around the neck bibs and all that kind of stuff putting the players through their pace, which is good. You know, I mean, I, I hope he is doing that because the more you think about it, the more you wonder, what is his outlet going to be in this job? I mean, if, you know, he's he's got all this work to do. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting job. You know, how do I help to put together an Irish team that qualifies for and then doesn't embarrass itself at an international tournament? You know, so that's 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 enough to absorb anyone's energies but if you don't then have the power to make your decisions you know what happens if you disagree with what Martin O'Neill is doing you know it's, it's frustrating um, you might start to feel like well what am I doing all this work for you know I'm not, I, don't, I don't really have any outlet if he is going to be the sort of coach if he's going to be in charge of the training then that does give him a bit of an outlet because you wonder what else is going to be I mean obviously there's, there's going to see the players um, yeah, scouting them, but the other players haven't. The other coaches, I should say, haven't even been installed yet. Isn't that right? Steve Walford and Steve Guppy was even mentioned at some point. I don't think any of these guys have actually been brought in because O'Neill said, oh, I, "It's just too quick. I, we we're going to get myself and Roy get these games out of the way, and we'll take it from there." Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll we'll see what the story. I mean, maybe it will change then once once that does happen. But I mean, what else is he going to do? Like, I mean, is, is it going to be sort of like Bill Bezik? You know, that guy Steve McLaren works with that he's a psychologist you know one on one time with players you know you turn up to Stoke say and you go and you you, you actually arrange to meet Stephen Ireland for uh, for coffee after the game or maybe not coffee I don't know what you'd have what would you have after the game and and you sit him down and talk to him is that, is that what happens or does he text the players after the after he see because you know some of them felt a bit lonely when Trapattoni just his stony uncaring attitude towards them he just would never tell them when they were dropped or anything like that. maybe Roy Keane's job will be to keep in constant text contact and write to them in which case they would have to have his phone number and he certainly didn't used to like people having his phone number uh, what was it about six people in the Manchester United dressing room were allowed to have it um, I don't know how the FAI may just bring for a second phone. Maybe just buy him, as someone was saying today, Ready just to 30 burners. Uh, just <laughs> one phone for each player. And uh, just contact them on that and and, uh, and use it for no other purpose. Um, okay, more Martin O'Neill. Uh, one of the questions that he was asked is essentially, have, have you had yet any time to think about what kind of tactics this team are going to play? What kind of system we're going to play? How's your thinking? Is your thinking yet that advanced? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, really. I, I'm going to, um, between the next couple of days here, I've had a chance to have a little look at some of the games, but really how the Republic have played in the last... Um, you know, sit down and analyse each game and see how they've played. I've got my own uh, thoughts on it, uh, obviously. I, um, you know, you would, want, um, uh, you would want as much midfield possession as you can get. Seems to be that people are flooding midfield, but that's nothing new. I mean, it's been done years and years ago. Um, Brian Clough 
played a European final way back in 1980 against Hamburg, where he put uh, just one man, Gary Birtles, up front. And, uh, and he wasn't calling it uh, anything novel at that particular time. So it's, you know, it's people of different systems are playing. I think well, what we'll try and do as best as possible to find a, a system that probably suits the players. Yeah, that's been Martin O'Neill's approach throughout his career. It's not necessarily to stick with a system. Is yeah. Gary Birtles going to be the the Totti or the Liam Brady or the Platini of this group? Where he says, Gianni yeah. Rivera. <laughs> <laughs> Rivera, who he just kept banging on about. I, I don't have quality uh, of players. Like I don't have Gary Birtles, who I once played with. I, ha- I have no Birtles. I have no Robertson, I suppose. I have no Larry Lloyd. Well, maybe Richard No, Viv Anderson. Um, I, I don't know. He, he hasn't, he, he hasn't uh, spoken that way yet. I mean, he was very complimentary about the players, to be honest. You know, he said, there's some great players in that group. Oh, oh, really excited about the talent at my disposal in this job. Um, but one thing that he'd mentioned was, um, you know, his, his, he, he, he had the reputation uh, as a club manager of not being the easiest man to contact you know, if you wanted to get in touch with a player, an international player you had at Aston Villa, he might leave you to stew a little bit. Oh, yeah, or even if you were his chairman. Jonathan Wilson told us this last week. Mm. It might have been when you were away that after the season ended, the season that he initially came in, gave, had a good impact, saved him for relegation. Towards the end, a lot of draws, a lot of not particularly great results. Mm. In the summer, I think Alice Short thought maybe a chat might be in order at some stage. Martin O'Neill, no, phone off. <laughs> Always looking for chats, though, Alice Short, isn't he? Roy Keane didn't want to answer the phone to him either. Or he did the thing of click, you know, hang up on hang up on incoming call. He didn't even let the <laughs> phone ring out. No, according, according to that, the interview that he did in the Irish Times a little while after he left Sunday, that's what he said, you know, he was sitting in the car, saw the number come up, you know, for the for the severalth time over the last couple of days. Uh, hadn't they just lost 7-1 to Everton or something? That was the context. Yes, I think Click, so. not going to answer that. And then uh, that was... Pretty much it. Or, so O'Neill just like, to or was it Bolton? They lost, or you know, they they lost to Everton. They they lost heavily to Bolton. It was things were not going well. Anyway, uh, but but the question is, did did he feel when he was a club manager that his players uh, would go out on international duty and not be well treated by? Because he talked about the need to, to. We don't want club managers feeling that our, their players are going to come here and be badly treated. So I, I wondered if he thought that his own players had been badly treated or you know mistreated in some way when they went to international international duty. I think I what I used to feel about it was that they would do they would do uh, the training would be very different and um, sometimes the the players then having had really tough times of it let's say I played maybe four consecutive games in a, a period of say 15 16 17 days then had to go and play some matches at international level where different, uh, I mean, managers have their own ideas about training, but some of the players might be doing two sessions a day and then having a game coming up in very quick succession. So the time that they were coming back to me, I felt that uh, you weren't getting the best of them for four or five days. But that's inevitable, and that's going to happen. And, uh, and the reverse now might be true. But I think I'll, 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 I'll keep an eye on the players they won't be subjected to ferocious work in these next three or four days. That becomes a different issue the closer the, um, the closer the competitive games come. The Clive Woodward interview that we've mentioned a few times, during that he talked about this exact topic and he was coming at it from still being in club manager mode really and he said that when he 
he, for example, Stephen Fletcher had gone off for Scotland duty. I think it was Stephen Fletcher and came back with a Banjax knee. Mm. And I knew something about how frustrating that is as a club manager. It was just funny because I was thinking, listening back to it again after he became the Ireland manager, you're just, it's just one of those things in a profession such as football management that now the shoe's on the other foot yeah. and he's going to have to fight his corner for the Irish players. Yeah. Even, I mean, even if you can empathise with the club manager. I'm sure Roberto Martinez wasn't too happy when Darren Gibson arrived back with a busted cruciate ligament after the last match that Ireland played. And it's just the way it is. And players are going to randomly get injured in, in matches. Hopefully it doesn't happen too much on you know on international duty. I mean, didn't wasn't it Louis Saha, um, who who was always famous to getting injured whenever he was called up by the French team, he used to really really annoy Alex Ferguson. Maybe that was just um that uh, frequency bias thing or illusion frequency illusion thing we were talking about the other day. Anyway, uh the thing about Roy Keane, chief coach, uh running the session, was that he was at the training ground uh, at half nine, even though training only started at 11, just checking that everything was in order because he wouldn't want things to have thing, you know, something that he needed not to be there on time. You know, and, and if you're professional, you do you go about these things in the right way. You professionally go and you check it out. Uh, and that's what he was doing uh, half past nine. So this this was sort of put to me like, wow, half nine. Uh, Roy, uh, well, I sent him there early, you know. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> I did not. He wanted to go, and he was with the goalkeeping coach, and Seamus is always early anyway. Seamus, Seamus would have started at half past five this morning, you know, if he could. And so Roy wanted to go with him just to, uh, to um, just to get a few things organised. No, he's, he was he was um, he was very focused. He was looking forward to it, and he was talking a great deal about it last night. So, and true to his word, he was there. Keen really slaying all his demons, hanging out with the goalkeeping coaches yeah. who caused him such issues back well, in the day. It's not the same goalkeeping coaches. You know. oh. We've got to remember the previous goalkeeping coach was the was one of the people he actually did have a uh, uh, bust up with inside. Oh, Alan, sure, Alan, Alan Kelly, Kelly who, yeah, who who's, isn't who's, going to be involved in this. He's no longer involved. Uh, thank you very much for your contribution. I mean, I, I don't know if there is any. I mean, I think O'Neill explained that in terms of he's worked with McDonough before and, you know. Um, but uh, another Bernie issue that comes up, just that he, he mentioned that Keane was talking about this a lot last night. He was excited about it, he was talking about it a lot. Apparently they were all kicking back, telling a few stories last night as well. It was story time in the Ireland, uh, in the Ireland camp. Martin O'Neill holding court, Roy Keane there, you know, also a, a big presence, not an overweening one, but... You know, also they're uh, bantering everybody in a very good mood. A great spirit in the camp is what I understand was happening last night. So To be a fly in the wall. Okay. So that's good. But another thing that Roy King, I remember coming over here um, for one of his guide dogs press conference, talking about Stephen Ireland. Uh, and he talked about how it's pure quality that boy has. Pure quality. If it was me, was the manager... I'd be camping outside his house. Yeah, the particular issue that year was the anti-cork bias, though, wasn't it? Was it the same I'm, year? I'm almost certain that that was the year that everything about cork oh, every was incredible. Year, every year, there's anti-cork bias, you know. And anyway, Stephen Ireland's from Cove. Is that the, is that considered the same? Is is Cove and Cork they're, they 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 pal up for this for this issue? Yeah, I mean it's the county of Cork that the bias was shown against, not just Cork City. Okay, all right. I thought it might have been Cork City, just no. or, or North Cork even. No, no, no. I think it's the entire. Yeah, I would have been my there. understanding of it. But at, at the time, anyway, and okay, Stephen Ireland probably was playing a bit better than he has done over the most of the intervening years. Although, who scores a really nice goal 
for Stoke on the weekend only Stephen Ireland. So he's still got you don't lose the quality, surely. So the question that arose with Martin O'Neill then, obviously, whether um, Stephen Ireland's return is a priority for him. I really do have genuinely open-minded. Uh, I I will get round to to watching him play. Obviously, he's playing regularly now and apparently doing very well. Um, I haven't had a chance to see him play live, but that 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 will rectify itself in no time at all. And um, <clears throat> so, but again, very very open mind, you know. If if that's the case, listen. If if Roy can come back, you know, surely it's open for anyone. You know. Do you feel that you have to sit down and talk before he seems to think that he's going to lead maybe in some of the first book? It's a good point. I, 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 I don't know Stephen that well, and therefore I will really have to think about it. You know, it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be mind-boggling. You know, I think it should be relatively straightforward. If people want to play for a start, that that helps immensely. You know, if you're going to have to force people to play, then that might be, become a different issue. But I'll see. Force people is one thing, but make them feel really special by turning up at their club and asking for a meeting. Yeah, is maybe a more achievable. I'm not saying I, I don't know. I, I to be honest, or send Roy Keane to sit outside their house yes. in a car across the road for for the night. There have been a couple of managers that Stephen Ireland has now refused to play for. Uh, Steve Sutton after a certain period of time and Trapattoni. I don't, and he did indeed. Trapattoni did grant him a meeting. So maybe at this point for Stephen Ireland, if he wants to play, just name the guy in the squad. Yeah, that's, and it sounds as though that's what O'Neill's going to do. But another thing that he was asking there was in terms of, remember Stephen Ireland actually arrived at Aston Villa around exactly the same time that Martin O'Neill left, in fact slightly afterwards, but as part of a deal which took James Milner to Manchester City, which Martin O'Neill was not happy about, the fact that Milner was going to go to, to City. And I think this was, this was kind of all part of the events that culminated in, the, in Martin O'Neill leaving that job. You know, the sense of not being back to the club saying, well, we're selling Milner, there's a lot of money on the table here. Um, but the question was whether Stephen Ireland being part of that deal was O'Neill's choice. You know, was he a player who O'Neill said, OK, if this has to happen, we'll have him in part exchange for for Milner. Um, and the answer was, that's a really long story and I, I must tell it to you sometime, was pretty much what O'Neill said. But he said there was a lot of stuff going on at the time, uh, and Stephen did arrive after me, and there was so much going on, and it really... But it didn't really sound to me as though he had said... What it sounded to me like, speculating, was that Martin O'Neill didn't want to say, no, I never asked for Stephen Ireland as part of that deal. Stephen Ireland might be playing for him, you know, next year. Um, but it, it sounded as though maybe it wasn't his decision to include Stephen Ireland's party exchange. But who knows, as he said, a long story. We'll hear from a couple of the players in a little while, a little bit later on in this programme. But briefly, Ken, what other reports are making their way into the report on sports? Well, yeah, I mean, the the notable thing, obviously, about the Premier League this weekend was the all the sort of favoured teams losing, apart from, well, I mean, Manchester United beat Arsenal, who were sort of run away leaders and Phil Jones uh, is, is talking about, Phil Jones doesn't say too much um, but when he does speak damn it it's interesting um, he said that he feels that Manchester United have been driven on uh, by the the sense of people wanting them to fail everyone hates the best clubs it's as simple as that uh, we enjoy that we relish the test we get thrown at us week in week out so that's Phil Jones. But he was talking about um, the 
what David Moyes has has achieved there in terms of Moyes going around and um, talking to everybody, um, uh, you know, individual attention to every player, really hard training, really intense preparation, and it worked. Did it work? Did you watch the game? Yeah. Was it not one of the worst Manchester United Arsenal games you've seen in a long time? I mean, usually Manchester United win those games. Mm. That's true. Especially the ones at Old Trafford. They, they, uh, I think it's 2006, maybe 2007, the last time Arsenal won there. And since then, United have just been steamrolling them. But I didn't think it was a very stylish victory. Now, the points are the important thing. But if, is this... Is this what it's going to be like? They actually just look nervy. I thought, Man- I thought Manchester United were decent enough in the first half. Um, from the start of the second, they were a little sloppy in defence. They were a little, we'll just fall over the line here. And they Arsenal were really poor for 45 minutes. Yeah. But they actually gave Arsenal a foothold in the game and could have paid for it. Mm. If, if I, I don't know how much the bug affected some of the players who were in the field. Arsenal had a, a, a couple of lads cry off sick the night before the game. They didn't look as vibrant as they had for most of the other games this season. But also, they were playing a pretty good team, and they haven't played many pretty good teams this season. This is Arsenal. So. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, it's it's a good thing for the league, really, that Manchester United were able to win that because uh, it would have been eleven points between them and Arsenal. Arsenal would have been what five points clear, which is a pretty uh, sizable lead at this stage. The only other thing worth mentioning really is obviously Chelsea got away with this. Well, there was the whole Poppy thing, by the way. There was these. There was two massive uh, Twitter controversies over Irish players not wearing poppies. The first of them was James McLean, who was reported on Twitter to have been dropped and sent home for not wearing a poppy, but then was said by Owen Coyle afterwards to have a dead leg. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't believe I get asked these questions in this day and age, that people think that could be an issue. Um, you know, I think McLean was there today, so he seems to have recovered from the dead leg, so that's great. It's great news for Ireland. Not wearing a poppy at Ireland training. I assume. No poppy at, at Ireland training. But there was also Shane Long. So Shane Long uh, was being, a, a, you know, photographs of him uh, at Chelsea not wearing a poppy on his shirt and being called a disgrace. Having and, just know, scored a goal. He's got people like Johnny Mad Dog Adair tweeting him. Johnny Mad Dog Adair called Shane Long an arse piece. <laughs> That's the word he chose. <laughs> That's the word. And Shane, Shane Long, uh, you can look at it. It's, Shane Long has favorited a lot of the tweets that he got that were abusing him, including this exchange with Johnny Mad Dog Adair, who, who then noted that his tweet had been favoured by Shane Long. I'm sorry if this is getting a bit te- Twitter technical, and said, ah, I think obviously Shane Long must agree with me or something. And Shane Long replied to him saying, no, I just wanted to mark it out because you are one of the clowns who was wrong. Because the point is, Shane Long was wearing a shirt with a poppy in the first half when he started the match. He was wearing this shirt and he had a photograph of himself there being challenged by John Terry but a lot of players change their shirt at half time because they I don't know they don't like sitting there in a cold sweaty shirt um, Richard Dunn does the same thing this is how he ended up running out of shirts in Moscow you know and he needed a new shirt in the second half so um, uh, he changed the shirt and obviously the change shirt was just the regular one that didn't have the special you know poppy symbol so too but what was, what was almost as notable about this besides the, the the criticism of these players for doing something they hadn't actually done i.e not gone along with the whole you must wear a poppy thing which you know Mesut Ozil I think he was saying Owen was, was walking around wearing his, his poppy fine was almost the almost equal haste of people on the other side to go oh, don't you realise the poppy is a symbol of imperialism don't you realise what happened you know and, and this, a sort of a, a haste to get involved with equal disregard for the actual 
facts or, or determining whether or not any of this would actually happen. That's the end of Kennerly's special international edition of the report on sport. John Delaney, he's on about the honesty and tech. I wouldn't take any notice of that man. People seem to forget what was going on in that World Cup, and that man's on about honesty. Cut corners, it's got to be all or nothing. It's going back to me in 2002. If you prepare for something and it's not right, and you're going to get bloody nowhere. That definitely comes from the top, from the FEI. I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear. I was one of the players, he didn't, he didn't have the courtesy to ring me. He got interviewed and all he said was, I don't know where he is, he's on the island. He's on the island somewhere, I think. We're all going to be celebrating on the pitch after beating San Marino then. That does worry me, I have to say. But that comes from the top, from the FAI. That'll do attitude has been going on far too long. That'll do. That'll do the Irish. Let's change that attitude towards Irish supporters as well. Listen, they want to see the team winning as well. Let's not kid ourselves. I know we're a small country and, you listen, we're up against it. But let's not just go along for the sing song every now and again. It happened, it's happened to, it happened to me. It happened to me when I was 17, 18 years of age when I played France for the Irish from the 16 or 17. The lads who got ahead of me that night were from Dublin, and the manager that night was from Dublin. I know Steve Sutton's not from Dublin, but a lot of the FBI are. I've been involved in Ireland since I was 15 years of age, and that man didn't have the decency even to make a phone call. Try my hotel room. Yeah, you can laugh. That was the World Cup. You can achieve anything you want, if you believe it. But if you don't believe it, and that's coming, like I keep saying, from the FBI or the manager, staff, whatever, then you're going to get nowhere. You can talk all day, like you're saying, you're saying to talk, the FBI talk, you can talk all you want. I've been talking for the last hundred years. Yeah, more from Roy Keane tomorrow at the first Keane press conference as assistant manager of the Irish team. Uh, that's going to be especially early football show put out on Wednesday rather than Thursday. No point. When you've got dynamite like that, Ken, there's no point sitting, sitting on, on You don't sit dynamite. on dynamite. Never, ever sit on audio dynamite. That's uh, lesson number one in online radio. We're joined now by Sid Lowe to talk about the crisis enveloping the career of Leo Messi. Sid, the first question about this, I guess, is uh, a hamstring injury is not really that big a deal in football. Players get them all the time. You're out for a month or two. Ideally, you then come back and it's no major issue. But it's Leo Messi here, so it's become a massive, massive story. Are there questions being asked there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I started reading off the questions, we'd be here all night because it's provoked so many um, different areas in which people are asking why this has happened, what's changed, you know, why why it should keep recurring. Because bear in mind, this is now um, the fifth muscular injury in, in six months. He's not really at any point been properly fit since since he picked up that injury last year against Paris Saint-Germain, which, of course, he came back from and played in the second leg, um, but then played, but might not, might as well not have played in the semi-final against Bayern Munich in the first leg, didn't play the second leg. And it feels like he hasn't quite got fit since then. And, and there are loads of questions to do with his diet, his preparation, Barcelona's pre-season, his own pre-season, his emotional state surrounding this. And, of course, the fundamental question everyone's asking is, when will he be back? And, and when he's back, will he be as good as he, as good as he was before? What about the key question, which is, have Barcelona as a club and their managers, their last three managers, done enough to safeguard the physical health of Leo Messi in a footballing sense? Or have they allowed him to have too much say over when he should play and how often he should play? 
Well, that's that's that that's one of the very key questions that that then spawns a whole load of others that come with it. And I think I think you've um, you've got very close to the, the the key point there by by mentioning the last three managers, and that's precisely the 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 kind of the focal point of of the debate, which is the last three managers, obviously Tata Martino now, Tito Villanova before, and maybe if you like Jordi Rauda for for a short period while Tito Villanova was ill, and Pep Guardiola. And the thing that has escaped the attention of absolutely nobody is that for four years under Pep Guardiola. Messi barely ever got injured. I think there was one muscular injury which had him out for about a week. Um, with Tito Villanova, there was already a slight sign at the back end of last year. Of course, he got injured a lot. Now he's getting injured a lot more. And one of the questions that's being asked is precisely not only what's changed in terms of the preparation that was done with Pep Guardiola that maybe isn't being doing, done now, what's changed in terms of the personnel that Guardiola had around him and, 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 and the relationship that those people have had or no longer have with, with, with Leo Messi, but also what that means in terms of, as you as you put it, Messi himself. To what extent is the club doing the right thing by Messi and to what extent is it allowing Messi to do what he just feels like or, or considers to be the right thing and of course may be wrong and, and there is a temptation now, I think even before this injury there was a temptation to say that what we've seen this season is, is an indication of the fact that despite his brilliance Messi probably is a player who does need a coach yeah I mean maybe not much has necessarily changed you know he could be doing exactly the same thing but he's just a piece of meat ultimately like everyone else and mm. he's prone to sort of wear and tear but what about you know you'd like to think maybe the coach has the authority to sit him down and say okay um, you're going to sit out a few games because you're going to you're going to have to get fit but a lot of sort of little stories that come out about Messi recently suggest that he's actually a kind of unmanageable player in a sense I mean he he sort of does what he wants and the coach has to go along with it. Is, is, this, is this the impression that you have? Well, I think there's, there's, there's certainly a small element of that. And bear in mind that, as you say, it feels like a manager needs to sit down with Messi and tell him, tell him how to do things and, and you need to do this, you need to rest and all the rest of it. And, and the, pretty much the first thing that Pep Guardiola, Guardiola did when he became manager of Barcelona was to say to Messi, you can be the best player in the world, but only only if you do it this way. Don't allow this to, to slip away. Don't allow this to be a problem. And that involved things like things like training regimes. It involved things like dietary plans. It involved a tactical change. But of course, that, that desire to make Messi the best player in the world, possibly one of the best players that there's ever been, brought with it some costs. And it brought the cost of Messi becoming increasingly aware that he was, that he was fundamental. I think, to some extent, it, it's certainly true that Zlatan Ibrahimovic paid for that. And, and there, is, there have been little glimpses, haven't there, over the last, certainly over the last six or six or eight months or so, of, of little glimpses of, of, of Messi feeling that he's more important than he is. Well, maybe only feeling he is every bit as important as he is. Maybe it's right to to, to make sure that a player that's, that's that good is comfortable. But so long as in return for it, that player looks after himself as much as you're looking after him. And I think I think there is that question is now being posed probably with more with more zealousness than ever before. Because I think before there was a tendency to say, yeah, well, look, he's brilliant, so let's just kind of get on with it. But now with hindsight, when it's perhaps a little bit too late, there are some people thinking, well, perhaps perhaps it's going to be too difficult to claw back some of that territory now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're coach, you're going to try and bend over backwards to, to ensure that Messi feels happy. But um, there have been a couple of things. I mean, I know that in, in Guillaume Balaguer's uh, book, about Pep Guardiola, he, he cites a couple of instances where Messi is, uh, I think, rested for a game against Real Sociedad and throws a big strop and, and doesn't turn up to training the next day. So Guardiola, you know, never drops him again. There was also a book, uh, and I, I haven't read this, Sid, maybe you have, um, released recently, El Mysterio de Messi. Yeah, the Sebastian Fest book. Yeah, I mean, how, how, how seriously, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the key claims that are made in here um, uh, and how seriously you would take them. 
Well, I mean, the, I think probably the in terms of the anecdotal, the the probably the key key one he tells is the story of, of Messi being on a on a on a team bus. Um, you know, I, I, let's say for argument's sake, I must confess I can't remember how many seven or eight rows behind Pep Guardiola after Zlatan Ibrahimovic has just had a great game and Guardiola's telephone beeps and the message basically says, "I see, I no longer matter for this team," or words to that effect. And of course, at that point, that that, that scene almost, if you like, there's a start of the end for Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who on the pitch at least had done nothing wrong. But, but but to try and accommodate Messi and to try and make Messi feel important, to try and make him the centre of everything because you, you run the risk otherwise of, of him not being happy, then, then decisions are taken which perhaps are not the best. But then, of course, in, in terms of the results, it's always seen as the best. And a Barcelona fan, a friend of mine, pointed this out to me and said once that, well, you look, the Chicago Bulls built everything around Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was a pain in the arse a lot of the time. But when you've got someone that good, then, of course, you do. The problem is that then you run the risk. And you run the risk of what the Spanish have often described as, as Messi dependent, which, of course, happened last year. I think we saw it in the Bayern Munich game. And then this year, when they construct, Tata Martino is constructing a system which I think depends a little less on Messi, there's question marks about the style, about whether it's right. So it, it does sometimes feel like the, the, the manager of Barcelona almost can't win. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it certainly it chimes with what Zlatan said. I mean, he always blamed Messi for sort of forcing him out. And it's funny how the best player in the world can apparently still be prey to these sort of insecurities as yeah. everyone else. But I wondered, though, to what extent, because the, the way that over the last six months he's kind of kept coming back really quickly from these little injuries and never quite seeming to get over them. He's, he's, all, he's very obviously to an outsider hurting himself uh, or not giving himself the best chance and the sensible thing to do. To what extent do you think maybe an obsession with chasing records is driving this behaviour from Messi? Because he's, he's, he's scored goals at a rate that nobody's seen since you know the, the 50s uh, and maybe he now feels that he has to keep doing that or his, his attitude now is a bit different. He has to get out there and score in every game and, and that's what he's about now. Well, I think, I think that, I mean, it's always very difficult, isn't it? I mean, first of all, it's, it's very difficult to to talk with, with real authority about an injury when we're not doctors. That's, that's the first thing. The other thing is it's also very difficult to, to, to kind of play amateur psychologist and try and work out what's going on, on inside a player's head. But I think what we, I think what we have seen is that, that sometimes this Messi playing when he's not fully fit and Messi, Messi going onto the pitch when perhaps he shouldn't is not necessarily about the club desperately panicking that they might lose without Messi. It's about Messi wanting to play a lot of the time. And we saw this last year, didn't we, against Paris Saint-Germain in the second leg when, when an injured Messi made enough of a difference for Barcelona to go through. And the next day, we were all raving about Messi. And by the way, rightly so. And David Beckham was saying, this guy's amazing, even injured. He's the best player on the pitch by miles. And that reinforces that idea. I think that it's okay to do this because this guy's so good. But in the long term, it, it can't be good. And, and to take it directly to your question about to what extent is he chasing records, I don't know. Um, whether it's about chasing records. But I think that, uh, I, I personally think, and again, as I say, this is playing an amateur psychologist, so it makes me uneasy to say so, but I personally think that sometimes what happens is that when someone wins all the time, when someone is the best all the time, it becomes expected of them. Rather than something to, to, rather than something to celebrate, it becomes something to expect. And so I think that then, for example, Messi wins the Ballon d'Or four years in a row. I think that by the third or the fourth year, it's no longer a celebration for Messi. It's, it's an obligation. It's failure now is coming second. It's, and and I, think, I think that does create a, a need, a need in speech marks perhaps, to, to keep on going, to always want more, to always need to play, when in fact you probably shouldn't. And, and I do think that emotionally that probably takes its toll, that emotionally it probably does reach a point in which, in which Messi doesn't so much take joy in scoring goals as feel that he absolutely is obliged to do so.
Sid, you touched on the relationship between himself and Martino, the manager, um, which I'm quite interested in because even reading Alex Ferguson's book lately, almost all managers really get... If a, ma- if a player, no matter how big, starts getting injured a little too often, the managers really don't see them as a particularly valuable commodity anymore. Louis Saha is a prime example in this one. He said that Ferguson loves Saha, said he's amazing, as talented as any striker he ever had but uh, he had to be 150% fit or feel 150% fit to actually play the game. Now, Messi's obviously a very tough nut and has proven that over the years, but is there any fear here that the manager might start thinking, uh, you know, he's not really around for that many games. He's picking up a lot of these soft muscle injuries. I might start looking elsewhere. Well, I don't know about looking elsewhere because I think Messi is so good. I mean, and, you know, look, managers will... will Will, will, will feel the way they feel about different players at different levels but of course there's a, a fairly significant difference between Luis Sahar and, and Leo Messi um, and so I, so I think that perhaps will, will, will mitigate against that but it's curious in a way because this is quite contradictory what's happened this year because at the start of the season and this takes us back to what we were saying before at the start of the season Martino I think substituted Messi four times and at one point he said well I will keep taking him off uh, although, admittedly, I will think twice about doing it five games in a row. And that's, that seemed to be the sensible thing to do, because we all knew that Messi needed protecting. It seemed to be the right thing to do to make sure he's fit and available for those key games. And yet, perhaps it went against him, because perhaps it was worse having a Messi playing on the pitch with a handbrake on than having a Messi on the pitch every game and really going for it, because perhaps the muscles contract, perhaps you're mentally not in the same place. And, and I think what Martino is probably thinking now is, I want this guy back, and I want him back fully fit, and let's get him back in January when he's right. I don't want him back now and about to break down. And so Martino is obliged at the moment, obviously at the very least for six or eight weeks, is obliged to build a team without Messi. But I don't, genuinely, I just can't see a scenario in which that becomes an attitude in which Martino thinks, you know what, I'm going to give up on him and I'm going to build a team without him. Because as much as anything else, what do you do with Messi then? Mm. You, you certainly can't have a guy like Messi hanging around at Barcelona and not playing. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this, this uh, having won the Ballon d'Or the last four years. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that I don't think he's going to win it this year, well, yes, you never know, I suppose. But uh, you mentioned in a report about this, this is actually before he got injured, that he's been comprehensively outscored by Cristiano Ronaldo this year. Ronaldo, who is seems bionic, just never, never gets injured, you know, touch wood. He's up to 62 goals in the year. But everybody kind of is looking at it thinking, well, surely it's got to be a Bayern Munich player because they won the Champions League and Ribéry was brilliant and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts on it? Does, does scoring all these goals for Real Madrid and not really winning anything mean that Ronaldo should be should be uh, recognised as the best in the world? Well, uh, this is the problem, isn't it, with the Ballon d'Or, and, and, and forgive me for the slightly evasive answer and going around the houses, but I suppose it's inevitable, which is you have to, first of all, ask yourself, what is the Ballon d'Or awarding? And if it's awarding who is the best player in the world right now, well, with Messi injured, I think the answer is Ronaldo. If it's awarding who is the individual player who's done the most amazing things over the last year, then maybe there's an argument for Ronaldo because of the goal scoring. But if it's who's had the best year, who's who's done the most, who's who's impressed the most, it sort of feels to me like it almost has has to be a Bayern Munich player. Um, I mean, for in, incidentally, for what it's worth, in 2010 when the Spanish were saying it had to be a Spanish player because they'd won the World Cup, um, and then Messi won it. Well, it, for me, it wouldn't have been either of those. It would have been Wesley Schneider because he'd won the treble and then got to World Cup final and been a key player in doing it. It's not just enough for him to be in the team because, as we all know, Jimmy Traore is a European champion. But you know, you know, it has to be about, I think, about what you've achieved in the year, what you've done in the year, rather than just, are you the best? But certainly, if Ronaldo was to win it this year, there's no doubt that it, it certainly wouldn't be a scandal, that's for sure. Sid, lovely, thank you. My pleasure. This idea, Ken, this obligation that Messi now feels, according to Sid, rather than being a celebration when he becomes the Ballon d'Or winner every season, 
It's an, he's now obliged, he feels obliged to be the best player in the world. That doesn't that sounds like a lot of pressure to me. Well, it's something that he owns now and, and now he's going to lose it and that's just going to be painful. I mean, it's like everyone is, is familiar with that. No one has seen a footballer achieve anything on this level before in terms of awards and in terms of uh, records, which were recognised at the time. You know, I think Gerd Muller was sort of as surprised as anyone to find out that Lionel Messi was about to break his record. He probably never heard. Oh, I didn't even realise I had that record until somebody looked it up to see if Messi was breaking a record. You know, at the time, it wasn't really... Those things weren't followed as obsessively as they are now, but now Messi is sort of lives in the constant presence of his own um, numbers, you know, and, and the sort of awareness of, of how he has to keep feeding the monster that he's created. It's a pressurised situation. Let's get a little more now from the Irish camp in Malahide. Ken, you were out there today speaking to Stephen Ward, who could be back in the fold. Yeah, Stephen Ward is one of the two players who came out to, to talk to the media today. Stephen Ward and Alex Pierce was the other one. But uh, he was there and he was, you know, it's one of these general press conference type situations. But he's talking about uh, how it's great. You know, it's great. It's, obviously, it's great that, that Roy's here and, and Martin O'Neill uh, is here. Uh, and one thing he said was that it's really important that after... Giovanni Trapattoni and Marco Tardelli, you know, that we got a big name in, that we got big name uh, coaches in to replace them. To which the question was, why is it important necessarily that we have a big name? Well, obviously, a manager of the calibre of, of Giovanni Trapattoni is he's not easy to replace. He's got, you know, an unbelievable record and he's been there and done it also. You know, when, when you're replacing someone like that, it's, it's obviously it's obviously helps if, if you bring in, you know, people of a, of a similar calibre, which, which they've done. What was your feelings when you heard Trapattoni had been, well, had mutually agreed to? Um, obviously it was, it was strange, you know, uh, you know, obviously he, I wasn't in the squad at the time, so, um, you know, it was obviously disappointing not to be in the squad, but on the other hand, you know, how well he done for us, how well he done for me, uh, how well he done for a lot of the lads, so, you know, it's always sad to see a manager go and, um, you know, it happened for whatever reason, you know, and, and you know, it's time to, to move on now and, and it's obviously a, a fresh start, a new era for everyone. I mean, because obviously he brought you into the squad, but then... He would start leaving you out. So had you maybe given up hope that you were going to get there back in underneath him? No, not really. You know, obviously, I, I think it was important I got away from Wolves, um, and it was important I, uh, I got back playing. You know, and enjoying my football at a team that was going in the right direction. You know, obviously, it was a disappointing year last year, and you know the way Wolves was going probably coincided in, in effect in a couple of of the Irish lads in the squad. So um, you know that was obviously disappointing, but. Um, you know, it's nice to have, have got away and, and, and I'm enjoying my football now. I've got a spring back in my step. Um, you know, and as I say, it's uh, it's just nice to be back playing and, and going out there every week and enjoying the game. Did you feel that your own form had suffered in that period? Um, actually, I, actually, you know, it was obviously tough when you're when the team's not winning and you're not winning games, and um, you know, I felt we were we were doing okay as a team. You know, not hitting the heights that we had them. So yeah, when when a team's in that sort of relegation battle, your form, you know, is, is probably not as 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 good as it's going to be when when things are going well. So. Um, yeah, it definitely definitely suffered a little bit, but um, you know the, the relegation was a was a big disappointment for us. And as I say, it's just nice to have that freshness and, and that new start. Players are obviously at an elite level already, so it's not like really the coaches need to do that much coaching, I suppose, in the training. What's the training then for an international team really about? Like, what are you aiming to do? Yeah, obviously that you can tweak a lot of co- coaching, but you don't, you know. At the end of the day, they're working with, with lads who are working with, you know, some of the lads are in, playing in the Premier League. So I think it's it's more tactical, you know, how they want us to play, what they want to do. Every manager's different, you know. But in terms, I don't think, you know, 
how you pass the ball, how you kick a ball. I'm talking about that type of coaching. There's not a whole lot that they, they need to do when they're working with, you know, likes of players, Robbie Keane, Glenn Whelan to this world. Do you know what I mean? It's more about, you know, how they want us to play, I'm sure, get us into a shape and, um, you know, the philosophy that they all wanted to stamp on, on the national team. So how, how does this kind of uh, Keenan O'Neill and, and their coaches differ from the way Tony and Tardelli specifically approach the training? Like, were they more involved? Were they sort of more okay, you know? Um, it's hard to know yet because obviously we've not come to a game situation. Obviously, you know it's only been one day. It's it's been quite a relaxed you know session where they just wanted us to be you know on the ball, sharp, get shots away. So, um, you know it, it, we'll probably find out more come come towards Friday and, and when the game's on. And, and obviously with, with international teams, you don't get your players for that long. So uh, there's not a whole lot of training that, that you need to do. Their fitness levels are, are up from playing at club level. And as I say, it's more about you know the tactical work. You know working on how you're gonna. You know, play against the team that, that you're coming up against. So it's it's more the the tactical side rather than you know coaching lads how to you know play the game that, that I'm sure they'll work on. Yeah, you would hope that there could be more of an effect than that, though. That if you if you come across an international manager and assistant manager who turn out to be two geniuses, that your footballing ability actually can improve. You could even go back to your club and be a little bit better than you were just because they don't work with you for that long. If they have some great ideas on the game and even if each player learns one thing from Martin O'Neill and doesn't forget all the other stuff from the club yeah. that's a good return but it's not like the one thing that he learns from Martin O'Neill pushes out one other yeah. important fact that he's learned in his career I know, just this, this idea that you can't really do anything as an international all you can do is organise the team I, I don't know if, you, if you're Martin O'Neill you should be able to impart some sort of football and wisdom on guys that will actually improve them yeah no I, I, I agree with that the players should always be learning and you're never too old to learn that's what I always say um, do say that. The one other thing I have to say is you didn't notice. I didn't notice. No. The doors closing? You noticed. The Robbie Keens, the Glenn Whelans of this world. Oh, that, that too, yeah. <laughs> now, I asked, I asked Stephen Ward if he'd, if he'd lost faith that he would ever get back in underneath Giovanni Trapattoni. Mm. Um, I mean, these things come out of your mouth, you know, and you how, can't well, take them back. How did you think you performed there yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean... You a little bit rusty, were you? A bit, yeah. You know, yeah. to be honest, I am. I'm, well, I'm, after a week off, people can be like that. You know, you know it's a little bit, but you know, we try, we try and uh, get get the sharpness back. We're joined now by Nick Harris of SportingIntelligence.com to talk about the ramifications of the news this week that the Champions League rights in the UK have been bought up by BT Sport at the expense of B Sky B and indeed ITV. Nick, the figures involved here are astronomical. Is there any risk attached for BT here? Um, I guess. If anything, the risk is that it won't have the desired effect of uh, persuading a whole load of new customers to come to them. Um, uh, I guess that's the only risk in terms of can they afford it, this £299 million a year that they're going to be paying from the summer of 2015 for three years. You know, they're an enormous business. They turn over about £20 billion a year. They throw off free cash of over two billion pounds a year they, they can certainly afford these rights theoretically they could afford these rights without it bringing them any extra business without uh, falling into massive trouble although shareholders wouldn't be happy but yeah but the risk is that um, it doesn't bring them masses of new customers however it's not necessarily about immediate short-term customer gains it's much more strategic much more long-term this is about the battle over the next decade with with B Sky B and other triple play providers, that's people providing phone, internet and TV services in the domestic market. It's kind of much bigger than about rights to a few football matches. 
So what is ultimately BT's strategic aim? Well, I mean, as I said, the, the long-term the long aim for, for, for BT is to get as many customers as they can uh, uh, getting their internet, pr- pr- primarily high-speed uh, broadband internet and, and fiber-optic internet, but also the triple-play bundles of TV and phone. I mean, that's kind of the, the holy grail of these telecoms providers and, indeed, um, communications companies like uh, Sky and um, to, to get as many customers possible taking those services, all those three services from them. Um, and now, this is a very fluid market. You've got lots of players. You've got Virgin Media and you've got other other providers, but the two big beasts at the moment are obviously Sky and BT, the biggest beast of all. And it's, it's, a, long-term, it's a long-term thing. BT aren't just thinking this is what they can get in the next two years or three years or even in the in the period of the Champions League um, contract, which is 16 to 19. You're talking about a 10-year project. They've got a 10-year lease on the studios in Olympic Park. Um, you know, it's very much a decade-long project. You can see that Sky, I mean, Sky are clearly the, the leading providers in terms of satellite TV um, in the UK. And 25 years ago, satellite TV was a pretty, pretty new thing, sort of modern. Is there a sense that maybe in, in 25 years from now, it will be quite an old-fashioned thing, that really the the important battleground now is broadband because ultimately that's how all of these things are going to be watched maybe in a very uh, short amount of time from now. Of course, yeah, it is, it is about, it's about broadband. It's about deliver, delivering um, those services digitally um, and via internet. So, of course, it's about broadband. But like you said, 25 years, the landscape has changed immeasurably. I mean, think 25 years ago, how you know, we were still pretty much living in a, in a uh, if not a three TV station age, then, then it wasn't long out of it. Um, people, pay TV was in its infancy. Um, even when in the early 90s, Sky became, you know, used, used um sport as the battering ram to get pay tv into people's homes you know you could subscribe to the sky channels i think it was two pounds 99 back in 93 94 that same package now cost you 27 pounds i mean uh, hardly anybody you're talking about a few tens of thousands of people had pay tv now there's uh, sky have got 11 sky alone have got 11 million pay tv customers some between six and seven million of them subscribing to sports channels. 25 years, I mean, goodness knows what the landscape will look like, but um, um, very different. So I guess you have to work with work with as far ahead as you can see. And at the moment, you can kind of see ahead a few years. And, and, and yes, it's about internet and it's about provision of those services. In two years' time, um, which is a very short space of time, the rights will be coming up for the Premier League again. And this is, I know, it's not as you say, it's not just about, from BT's point of view, getting people to watch football. That's a means to an end in some ways. But they'd be a lot closer to that end if they could blow Sky out of the water in two years' time and get a bunch of the deals, that you know, packages that currently go to Sky, which leaves B-Sky B in a kind of a funny position where they have to, I guess, decide okay, do we throw all our eggs into this basket, which is something that we've focused on uh, and had so much success with over the years, or do we hold our hands up, actually accept that that, uh, BT are going to win this particular battle and maybe start looking at ways to buy up other sports that we're not currently involved in or improve our services in other sports to try and fight it that way? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it can be overstated how massively significant the next 
round of Premier League UK live rights are. You say two years, but in actual fact, that those rights will go out to tender for the 16 to 19 period at the beginning of 15, 2015. So you talk about 13, 14 months, this rights process will actually open to tender. Obviously, minds will all be, be focused on it. It is so huge. Uh, it can't be overstated how big this is to Sky. Why? Well, uh, last Saturday when it was announced that they'd won the Champions League um, rights, which is important but relatively small fry, that led to £1.5 billion being wiped off the share price of Sky in trading yesterday. They've rallied very slightly today, but 10% of their share price went on on a relatively, relatively small deal. Premier League is huge. It's the premium rights rights brand certainly in britain it's absolutely massive and sky you know arguably have, have have used premier league rights certainly more than any other single property over the last 20 years to uh, as the driving force to drive their type pay tv business i know they've got lots of rights to other things whether it's nfl formula one golf particularly cricket but but overwhelmingly football is the premium property now the the, the multi-billion dollar question for sky is how many of their customers might potentially leave them or, or ditch their, their sports channels if they lost the majority or all of the t- of the Premier League rights from 16 to 19? I mean, I did a fairly basic straw poll last night on Twitter and, and several hundred people replied and the results on that basis alone didn't look, didn't look very promising for Sky. Something like over 60% said they would pack in their Sky Sports subscriptions if, if Sky lost the majority of the football. I know that's unscientific, it's only a straw poll, but, but there's so much resting on it. You know, can Sky afford to lose 10, 20, 30 more percent of their customers in, in one period of a few months in 2015? You know, definitely not. What can they do to counter it? Well, presumably make an absolutely massive bid can they be outgunned by BT? Well, BT, with $20 billion of revenues, are three times as big as Sky as a business. They've got huge pockets. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. In terms of what Sky can do to safeguard against that, you know, they've already got a very diverse portfolio of sports, everything from cricket to NFL to golf and all those other things. But, but as, we, you know, as we've already said, you know, the main single most valuable property that brings in the customers is the football. And that's why, really, you know... It, that that auction is absolutely huge. And what last Saturday's announcement of the Champions League showed us, more than anything, more than the actual acquisition of the Champions League rights, is BT's intent to spend money and their ability to spend money. So what happens in the next year and a half, two years up to that auction actually happening is going to be fascinating. It's interesting, Nick, that Sky's share price fell when this happened because BT's share price also fell when the deal was announced. So both companies ended up, although not by as much, it has to be said, but BT was a small... So both companies lost value uh, upon the news of this deal. The obvious winner from all this is um, is football, I guess, the game, or UEFA in, in the case of the Champions League, who are you know raking in the cash. How do you think it's going to affect um, those of us who who sit there watching this stuff and paying for it? I mean, is you know if if football is effectively going to be coming sort of free with broadband now, which is something which a lot of us maybe accept paying for anyway. Is this ultimately good news then for consumers or are they just going to find a way to, to ultimately gouge more money out of us anyway? Well, I mean, obviously the theory is that competition is good for consumers because it brings prices down. That, that's the theory. In practice, it hasn't necessarily worked like that 
you know, in what is still a relatively young market, we're only talking about a couple of decades of pay television in this country, way behind a lot of European counterparts and certainly America. It hasn't necessarily worked with like that because you've had, you know, upstart companies without the deep resources necessary to stay in for the long term, needing to charge um, subscription rates on top of Sky. So people have needed to get two packages to get all the football. And so it's been expensive and actually, you know, counterintuitively, um, a non-monopoly position has actually led to more expense for the consumer. I think, actually, it, there's probably more more value to the consumer already in the marketplace if you go and look for it. And it's a pain. It's a pain in the bottom to have to go and look for it. But if you are, for example, already a BT customer or a Sky customer and you go to your provider and your contract is up and you threaten to leave for the other, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you'll find there are a lot of fairly dramatic discounts available for you to stay. So that's a very real way that the competition has already brought down pricing. In the in the long term to media term, you know, if Sky if Sky lose the football, um, the Premier League football from twenty sixteen onwards, you know, they're gonna have to be forced to reduce their prices, you know, against this backdrop of fear that they will lose a whole load of their customers. That's obviously good for the customer. Um, if um, in terms of BT winning the Champions League and, and and everything at the moment, and they're claiming for the foreseeable future they have no plans to charge for the sports channels with the broadband customers. And as you say, most people are going to pay for broadband at home. Therefore, if you get the football on top, it's about them safeguarding their broadband customer base in the long term. I'm sure they'll also act at a premium, um, you know, for the TV for the pay TV services on top of it. But when it comes down to it, you know, that's the choice of the customer. One thing I find quite interesting in this whole thing is in the space of 20 years that there now seems to be a mentality that there's almost some kind of human right to have access to free premium sport in a way that we never assumed in the 70s or 80s that we, you know, we kind of almost demand that we should have high level football free in our homes. It, It wasn't always the case, despite what we hear. Yes, there was some football available. Um, ultimately, it's like any consumer product, and that, that is, you know, you can choose to have it or not. Nobody's forcing you to buy sports channels that give you live, whatever it is, NFL, high-definition Formula One. Um, you know, it, I think in the long term, again, it, I think it remains to be seen. I think the, the consumer has and will get better value the more competition, but it may take some time for those wrinkles to actually work the way through the system and provide that value. Nick Harris, SportingTelligence.com. Thanks very much. Thank you. So not necessarily great news for the viewer, although potentially. They'll find some way that it won't be. I mean, it can't be great news for everybody. Someone's going to have to end up paying. I mean, maybe if more people ended up paying less each... Um, but you know, you don't. I don't know. This I find it a really interesting area. Who knows whether BT's grab for broadband will work out? I mean, you know, some, what's hot this year, broadband, may not necessarily be hot in five years' time. There may be another way of another way of doing things. Ian telegram, Morris, on telegrams are coming are on the way back, Ken, are they? Ian Morris, he's a crackpot. Well, I mean, that's it's going too far. He's a visionary uh, academic who reckons that between now and 2050 there will be more change in human civilization than between this year, 2013, and the Stone Age. That's 2050, Kieran. You might even live that long. I'm telling you that the world in 2050 will be more different from today's world than today's world is 
Well, of course I will. From I'll be, the Stone I'll be Age. Half Our I'll second edition of Second Captain's Football this week will come out tomorrow rather than Wednesday. Um, well, rather than Thursday, I should say. So it'll be out on Wednesday. What sort of time are we thinking, Ken? Well, Keane is the press conference is on at two thirty. All right, and could go on a while. There's a lot of a lot of stuff to talk about. Late afternoon, early evening on Wednesday, there will be a brand new program for you online radio, Ken. Online radio. That's the idea. That's what we'll all be listening to by twenty. Well, certainly by twenty fifty. We're all listening to it right now. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank talk you, to you tomorrow. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.